This is Jimmy Popular. I'm a DJ every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. on WPRK 91.5 FM in beautiful Winter Park, Florida. In between playing the very best new wave music of all time, I tell stories about life in the big 80s. I'm collecting all those stories together in this podcast, starting with the mostly true but partially made up and definitely embellished story of Nate Flagler. Nate was the homecoming king at Redlands High School in Pennsylvania. He dreamed of someday being a Hollywood publicist. Telling the story is going to take a while, so I've broken it down into small chunks, like a Kit Kat bar. Now's a good time to mention that some of my family members were pretty offended by this story, so you shouldn't listen to it. It doesn't have any swear words in it at all, which is remarkable, actually, but it does have some pretty frank moments if you get my drift. Also, if you think you recognize any of the characters as being based on you, try not to think about things so hard. I came here in a time machine that you invented, and I need your help to get back to the year 1989. Sunday, December 24th, 1989. The first time I had it really bad for girls in 1980, I said. Her name is Lisa Welchel, but you'll remember her as television's Blair Warner on The Facts of Life. It was the episode where she and Sue Ann were hiding marijuana in a false tube of lipstick. Quit moving, you'll mess up the tattoo, Susan murmured, gripping my bicep a little tighter and giving the Crayola marker a quick lick before resuming her work. Every time you move, this mermaid starts to look more like a killer whale. I flexed a bit, thinking that might help, but it only caused Susan to exhale and squeeze my arm till it hurt. We had come up with this great prank. We were going to make my poor sweet mother think that her almost 17-year-old son had acquired a tattoo for his birthday. But at this point, it seemed highly unlikely that Susan Rivers and her washable markers were going to fool anyone. Yet as long as she drew on my arm, I had a captive audience for my philosophy of love. And so I relaxed again and let Susan keep drawing. Everybody else wanted Daisy Duke, I explained. An entire classroom of second-grade boys lusting in their hearts for a farm girl who wore nylon stockings with her short shorts. But not Nathan Flagler. The second I saw Lisa Welchel descend the Eastland staircase in all her prep school glory, I just thought to myself, that's for me. She's the one. You were seven years old, Susan replied, digging the tip of her marker into my arm in an effort to make the scales stand out. That's profane. I was nearly eight, but already a man, I assured her, gazing up into the pink folds of the canopy of her bed. It wasn't unusual for me to follow my buddy Susan home after school on days when we weren't being stagehands for the school play or rushing to finish up our work on the student paper. We spent afternoons huddled together on her bedroom floor discussing love and movies and poetry and food and her stupid ex-boyfriend, Leighton Radcliffe. She read to me from books by people like Emily Dickinson and Gertrude Stein and Sappho, who was like the world's first lesbian or whatever. I read to her from the preppy handbook and Frog and Toad are friends and Details magazine. Susan helped me shop. Despite my social climbing heart, all those years of hand-me-downs from my older farm boy brothers had turned me into a fashion victim. And I helped her study. Sometimes we'd tool around town in her orange Carmen Ghia, listening to mixtapes my Floridian pen pals had made for us. The Cure, Depeche Mode, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Church, Book of Love, Peter Murphy, and the B-52s. Susan didn't drive the Ghia to be cool. She drove it because it was the only thing her dad had left for her and her mom, aside from an upside-down mortgage and an enormous collection of Nazi memorabilia, which was currently boxed up in the basement. She worked at the Tiki Takeout near the university, and she kept me fed on a steady diet of pilfered lunch meat and chocolate chip cookie dough. Luckily for me, she was a very patient listener, because I was still rambling. Later that same year, I met Mary Sherpa, my sister's new best friend, who had a bosom upon which she could carry a fully loaded cafeteria lunch tray. No hands. We spent afternoons at the public swimming pool, and she taught me how to swim. Every practice word of this speech was to appear in my monthly column in our school newspaper, by the way. 
Susan frowned at the obese mermaid on my bicep and said, I can clearly remember swimming with you in my pool when we were six years old, Nate. That predates your encounter with the lunch lady by like two years. I shrugged. She taught me some new aquatic tricks then. Jeez, I tell you, that girl was amphibious. Maybe her tray-toting bazooms gave her magical buoyancy, she granted me. The rest of us have to rely on skill and practice. I sat up and made a muscle for her, causing the fat-bottomed girl in my arm to convulse grotesquely. Skill and practice, my point exactly. I slid off her bed and onto the thickly carpeted floor. My head rested against Susan's bunched-up pink comforter, and my eyes focused on her wall of Johnny Depp, including posters for Nightmare on Elm Street and a collection of 21 Jump Street fan magazine covers. So much of his work is just titled for what street it happened on. Anyway, which brings me to our plan, Operation John Hughes. Our plan. What's mine is yours, muchacha, I assured her. I took her silence as approval and I continued. The goal of Operation John Hughes is to replace the regrettably fictional Blair Warner with the all-too-real Judy Harder, the hottest head of hair at Redlands High School. All 300 pounds of it, grumbled Susan from above. I twisted my neck a bit so I could give her the evil eye, but all I caught sight of was the rise and fall of her chest through a gap in the pile of bedding. Susan had a nice body and all that, but there was no way you could place your cafeteria tray in her bosom and not end up with an avalanche of, like, Salisbury steak. She was built kind of athletic and healthy and sensible. I'm sorry, but it's true. Judy Harder does not weigh 300 pounds, I inform my sidekick. She weighs, like, like half that. I was referring to her enormous hairdo, Susan responded, but please go on. You know how I love to hear all about the steps of your master plan. It gives me insight into how a real man thinks. I took no offense. I learned my manly skills by watching John Hughes movies. I was pretty confident I knew what girls wanted. Girls want you to show up at their place of employment and make charming remarks, like Andrew McCarthy did in Pretty in Pink. Girls want you to sacrifice everything to surprise them with an extravagant gift of jewelry, like when Eric Stoltz gave Mary Stewart Masterson those diamond earrings and some kind of wonderful, and just before the credits rolled, he told her, you look good wearing my future. Oh, and girls want you to commandeer a float in a parade and sing Twist and Shout for their pleasure, and steal a sports car, impersonate their dad on the phone to get you both out of school, and why not stand outside Judy's house with a boombox held high over your head, blasting Peter Gabriel's songs until she falls in love with you, Susan suggested. And I realize I've been saying all that other stuff out loud. Say anything is not a John Hughes film, I countered. She rolled over and jackknifed her body so her face was close to my ear. Then why don't you and your perverted cousin Jeremy create your own Kelly LeBrock, and the three of you can take a cold shower together, like in Weird Science, 1985, written and directed by John Hughes, you broomhead. Sometimes, when she got quick with the movie trivia, Susan Rivers was an alright guy. Operation John Hughes had begun just after Homecoming, of which I had been the unlikely king. My only explanation for my dubious crowning was that in my relatively short tenure at Redlands High School, I was a member of more than a dozen extracurricular clubs, including Newspaper, School Annual, Nintendo Club, Varsity Club, Ephesians 210 Club, Chess Club, Computer Club, Drama, Chorus, The Puppet Team, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Track and Field, Student Government, and the Environmental Club. I might not have been the most popular kid at Redlands, but I was pretty well known simply because my name was on every roster. I also helped that more likely candidates for Homecoming King, like Rodney Click, he had broken his pelvis in a ski lift accident, and Leighton Radcliffe had been away at some sort of Olympic swimming tryout thing on the day the vote was taken. But anyway, with the help of an aggressive campaign of poster boards and press releases, and a prize giveaway of my mother's Swedish meatballs in the cafeteria, I won fair and square. A win's a win. Up until homecoming, Judy Harder had definitely regarded me as a real Anthony Michael Hall type, 
the suicidal nerd with a broken elephant lamp in the breakfast club, when you pulled the trunk, the light was supposed to go on, in case your parents only let you watch Disney movies. But something about that crown on my head must have worked its magic on her, because by Thanksgiving, she was passing me notes in class. Notes like, I like your jacket. Do you have the Paleozoic notes from O'Brien's class? And why do you always sit with Susan? You should sit next to me tomorrow. And sure, tomorrow happened to be the day of the Paleozoic era exam, but I was making progress. The Mesozoic era of our relationship was just around the corner, with the help of Operation John Hughes. It was like this. My sister's ex-boyfriend, Jamie Harder, was home from a year and a half in Spain, and his parents were throwing a huge New Year's Eve party at the Harder home to welcome him back. On the last day of classes before Christmas break, his sister Judy had personally invited me to attend. She may have suggested that I bring with me any old British literature plot outlines that I might have laying around the house, said she needed some inspiration for an upcoming project in English class. Whatever her motive, I knew this was my chance to finally be a Blaine McDonough instead of a Ducky Dale. Every weapon in my teen movie romance arsenal be aimed at Judy's heart that night. And by the time Dick Clark rocked us into another brand new year, she would be mine. The wind was whipping against the bedroom windows so hard that they rattled, and a brief shock of frigid air made it through the depths of Susan's bed. She leaned back on her pile of pillows, pulled the comforter around her, closed her heavy-lidded eyes, and said, Pennsylvania is heinously cold. Her Dior poison perfume and the secondhand smoke of the cigarettes she denied smoking made the room smell like teenage heaven. I told her, Judy's mom says there are only two places in the world in which a person can live, Malibu or someplace ridiculous. So here we are, in a heinously cold and ridiculous place, and you're drinking lemonade on a day like this. I'm pretending I'm in Malibu, sipping lemonade in the shade of my canopy bed, she replied. I can't wait for this decade to end. By this time next year, you and I will be at UCLA, or USC, or Azusa Pacific, and all of this snow will just seem like a bad dream. And Judy Harder will be conveniently located at CalArts, probably specializing in some sort of watercolor erotica. Anything to get out of this town. That was Susan's way of recognizing that the recession of post-industrial towns like ours might not be temporary, and that we were coming of age in an atmosphere of nostalgia and decay. I'm pretty sure, anyway. She said, so you're still determined to waste New Year's Eve on the Harders? Yes, I was. Still planning on making a fool of yourself with a girl that who only likes you for your mind? Can do. I smiled up at the ceiling dreamily. I don't mind being just another pretty brain when it comes to Judy Harder. She can use me all she wants. Oh, I'm sure she will, muttered Susan, right up to the last exam. I bought it last night, you know. It was an extravagant, you look good wearing my future quality gift for my beloved, as opposed to being a killer clown living in Stephen King's gutter. I've been talking about it for a month, but now the linchpin of Operation John Hughes was ready to be unveiled. Susan sighed. Oh no. Oh yeah. You want to see it? Do you promise just to show it to me and not go into some rambling description of how she'll slowly pull the sticks from her hair and her hair will cascade down over her heaving, barely concealed breasts as she thrusts her syphilitic? I promise. Let's see it, she agreed. I couldn't help but notice that she didn't say it with the same bold print level of all that I did. Not even with like italics. I whipped it out. A set of ebony hair sticks, each wrapped with an amethyst heart. I could just picture Judy Harder sitting next to me on her sofa at midnight, her strange golden cat eyes, her Botticelli-inspired body, an estimated 300 pounds of chestnut hair towering above her, her brand new ebony hair sticks in place, and I knew, I knew that eventually she would have to take them out. And in slow motion, her tanned fingers would grip the hair sticks, they would twist and pull, and her hair would cascade downward over her shoulders and over her her chest. 
And then I would like just fall forward into her arms, the cafeteria lunch tray having transformed itself into a velvet love seat. I would awaken her with true love's first kiss in the style of Prince Charming finding a lifeless Snow White in the woods, which is kind of messed up when you think about it. Some supposedly desirable guy who just hikes around the woods making out with seemingly dead girls. And those are nice, Susan admitted grudgingly. I watched as she held the ebony rods up to the light, saw the amethyst throwing sparkles across her pixie face. She looked beautiful in the reflection of Judy's gift, and I really ought to have told her so, but I thought it would sound totally lame so instead I said, yeah, she'll look good wearing my future. Susan clubbed me with a pink plush rabbit. And I finished the poem, I told her enthusiastically, which I will now read to you. Again? It's revised, I assured her, and I'm going to spray it with polo. Irresistible. Here it goes. One minute awake, lipstick, sweater, black tights, and that is her costume. Eyes brim over with suspicious innocence and all the world's weather. Three bottled wishes found by a boy nearby. Nate, I'm saying this as a friend. If you give her that haiku, she will die of unpleasant laughter. It's a scientific certainty. I folded my haiku neatly without finishing. Well, I think I know a little bit more about women than you do. Not, I mean, not likely. Nate, I'm not joking. Put it away and never get it out again. Now that's what she said. So I put it away and I climbed up into Susan's bed and I lay my head down on the pillow next to hers. I think she'll fall in love with me, I said quietly. I really, truly do. Susan sighed, and she touched my forehead the way my mother might, if it was as a reaction to something other than talk of Judy Harder's voluptuous body pressed up against mine. I mean, more like if I had a fever and I might die, like in Little Women, where Marmy came home to find Beth so sick she might die, and they had to work the fever down. I, I talked happily to Susan of our New Year's Eve plans. The two of us would go to the party at the Harders. Susan would drive herself home soon after midnight, having amply displayed to that jackass, Leighton Radcliffe, that she was perfectly capable of having a happy new year without him. But I would stay, and I would either ask Judy to drive me home, or I would make a play for an invitation to her, from her parents to sleep over. I mean, like, on the sofa or guest room or what have you. Either way, Judy and I would be together, according to the plan, officially together before the school year was over. And then we'd move to California together and live happily ever after. I don't need to prove anything to Leighton, Susan said distantly. I'm not mad at him. It's okay that we broke up. But he dumped you when you needed him the most, I exclaimed, defensive on Susan's behalf. How could he break up with you when those reporters were hounding you? When you had to get fingerprinted? When you and your mom could even stay at your own house for two weeks because of TV cameras and... He was away at regionals during the worst of it. He couldn't help that, she rationalized, as if semi-professional swimming was any excuse. And I had you anyway, and everything's better now, approximately. So I'll help you with Operation John Hughes, but like leave Leighton out of it. You want some Pez? I asked Susan then, and our heads clunked together as I dug down into the Donald Duck dispenser in my pocket. I pulled my candy from his tipped back head with my fingers, but when it was Susan's turn, she used her teeth. Donald liked it that way. You going to church tonight, she wanted to know? Yeah, of course. If the doors are unlocked, my family's there. Even Tommy and Belinda, she asked. My aunt says that with the new roof on the church, the building will probably not collapse when Tommy walks through the doors, I assured her. And Belinda's been going pretty regularly since she moved back home with no structural damage so far. Is your family going? Susan supped from Donald Duck's neck again and then said, My mom is so depressed since Wayne, the Wayne incident that she wants to stay home. She seriously thinks there might be a media trap waiting for us outside the church. Nothing like an update in a domestic violence case just in time for the holidays. A New York-based tabloid TV show had been harassing Susan and her mom for months, 
due to some legal action against them involving Susan's banished stepfather, Wayne. Their camera crew had even shown up for the school play in November and disrupted the show by taking flash photography just as Susan was being bit by Dracula. By now, however, interest in the case was winding down. The lawsuit was settled or whatever, and Wayne had moved out of town. Plus, the November sweeps month was over, so who cares? For my part, I would secretly miss the cameras and the paparazzi. I felt that Susan should have tried to use the publicity to her advantage, like in the style of Latoya Jackson or Lisa Mee Presley or Zsa Zsa Gabor. Just in case, you should wear something really hot to church, I advise her now. I could help you prepare a brief but potent statement if maybe I'll just stay home, she said. So I quickly converted the subject to Judaism. I think you might cheer her up. Judy, Judy, Judy. Susan shared her lemonade and her pillow and her music with me all afternoon and dutifully listened as a misused friend should, and I finally drifted off to sleep in her platonic sheets. I wish I could say I dreamed about Judy or Lisa Welchel or your mom, but what I really dreamed about was Rodney Click falling off that ski lift over and over and over again. I wasn't there when it happened, of course, but it left a permanent impression on my life in the shape of a homecoming king crown that might otherwise have never, never... I awoke alone to what could best be described as restrained shouting. Susan was in the hallway with her mom, and they were having a modest argument about the boy in her bed. If I call Juliana Flagler on the telephone and tell her that I found her son in bed with my daughter, Susan interrupted, Mom, it's Nate. We could lie on the floor. We could lie on the sofa. We could sit in a pew at church. It wouldn't be any more or less innocent than lying on my bed. Trust me on this. He's like my brother. If I had one. If I wasn't such a sweet guy, I think I might have found all this talk emasculating. I needed to play by the rules while you're still in school, her mother said. The door opened, and they were both staring at me. I felt like a big creep, and I pulled her pink sheet up to my chest, like the women of Falcon Crest always did as Lance Compson left them to go back to his wife or his winery or whatever. Even though I was fully clothed, I felt as if the paparazzi had caught me in a shameful indiscretion. Man, I hope that happens someday. You need to go, Nate, Susan said flatly, as her mother frowned at us both. My hormones are getting the best of me, and when I see your manly body in my canopy bed, it just, it just does something to me. It's unspeakable. Susanna, her mother began. As I got up, Susan grabbed my shoulders and planted a huge wet kiss on my forehead. Go, she exclaimed, with trembling seriousness in her tone. Go before I ravage you like you've never been ravaged before. Run for your life. I went to the window, slid the lower pane upward, and slipped out into the bitter cold of Pennsylvania. I'm going to have my way with you in the frozen tundra, my little Eskimo, she shouted after me, spanking me as I cleared the windowsill. You chapped my lips. Susan snapped the window shut behind me and pressed one palm against the frigid glass. I want you so bad, she mouthed. I took off running, laughing all the way. She was a really good actress. The Redlands Bulletin gave her the highest possible praise as Mina in Dracula, comparing her to Linda Hamilton of television's Beauty and the Beast and Jamie Lee Curtis, the Scream Queen. Of course, I'd written the review myself. Thanks so much for listening. The Jimmy Popular Show is written by James Brunlinger and produced by Joshua Dobbs. You can learn more about the podcast, the radio show, or my surprisingly large collection of costumes by liking my Facebook page at Jimmy Popular. See you real soon.